0: Hey, everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Jeff Gold, who has a new book out called Sitting In, Jazz Clubs of the 1940s and 1950s. Welcome, Jeff.
1: Thank you so much, Steve.
0: You know, I love this book so much. It's a beautiful book, and I'm such a fan of all of the components that make it so special. There's the music, of course. There's the graphic design and the ephemera and especially the telling of a visual story that up to now had not really been looked at.
1: Thanks so much, Steve. I really appreciate it.
0: So if you didn't have me from the cover and the overall design, you definitely had me in your introduction, which is so well-written. If you're looking for a comprehensive history of jazz, you write, this isn't it. So what is this book?
1: Well, this book is a celebration of the culture of jazz clubs of the 1940s and fifties. And through that, We take a look at how jazz evolved and the history of jazz and how jazz was driven by both musical innovation and non-musical external circumstances. But it's kind of a celebration is the way I look at it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's amazing the things I learned in this book anyway. And you have a pretty incredible background and you came upon a lot of these artifacts. Can you tell our listeners that story?
1: Yeah, so I worked in the record business for about 20 years And my out-of-control retirement business is buying and selling music collectibles. I get oddball solicitations all the time from people who have things they want to sell. And one came from someone who I had met one time about 20 years ago briefly, who had for 30 years been collecting jazz memorabilia. And it sounded interesting enough that I went and visited him. And when I got to his house, he said, we're going to my bank. And it turns out most of his stuff was in a series of safe deposit boxes in a bank vault. So we got to his bank, and he parked me in one of those little rooms they have for you to take your safe deposit box out and go through the contents. And about five minutes later, he reappeared pushing a push cart with five really large safe deposit boxes in it. So he put these up on a shelf, and we'd start going through them. And they weren't organized in any real way. It was more as he bought things, he'd drop them in there. So it was kind of a chronological order of his purchases. And so, you know, there might be 10 press photos of jazz artists, followed by some posters, followed by some tickets or handbills from clubs. And pretty early on, I found a photograph from a jazz club, a souvenir photo. And what these are is a lot of jazz clubs in the 40s and 50s had a, a photographer in-house who would go around from table to table, snapping pictures of the patron. And they'd go in the back room and develop them and bring them out in a portfolio with artwork from that club. And you could buy them for a buck at the end of the evening as a souvenir. I'd seen things like this from cruise ships or nightclubs, but never from jazz clubs. So I'd started a little pile of things I wanted to buy, and that went in the pile. And then some more sorting, and then maybe five minutes later, another one, and then another one, and then another one. And over three trips to the bank, I probably bought 150 of these. But even as I'd gotten the first trip to maybe 30, I thought, well, you know what? I've never seen these, and as somebody who's dealt in music history for 50 years, if I haven't seen them, I doubt other people have, these could be a great book. Because I had done two previous books and sworn off doing any other book because I just had too much going on? But these things kind of haunted me, and I came home and started researching them, and I couldn't find any collections of them anywhere online. No books that had these from jazz clubs, and really there are no books on jazz clubs. i was seen to my wife, God, these would be such a great book. And I'd show them to people who'd come over, and everybody would flip out. The people looked so elegant and dressed to the nines. and Most of them are African Americans, and a lot of them are during World War II. It was a terrible time for the country. I kind of engaged in a staring contest with these for about six months, and finally they won.
0: Well, I will say thank you, because it's incredible to look at. And knowing this story, that these documents were taken by house photographers— and developing them and selling them for a dollar. And who would have thought that they could provide such insight into so many levels, you know?
1: As I stared at these things, I realized, you know, we've seen pictures of some of these famous clubs like Birdland, but the pictures are always performers on stage performing or maybe people waiting outside in line or the marquee of the club or the awning of the club. But you never see pictures of the people who were there. And so these kind of turn the camera around to focus on who was there. But only upon seeing these, I realized you never see what the people look like. You never know who's in these clubs, and these pictures allow you to, for the first time, and I realize it's difficult to talk about compelling photos without being able to see them. So I set up a website called SittinIn.com, S-I-T-T-I-N-I-N, so no G, and people can go there and see lots of examples of these photos and get what I'm talking about. And another thing that was interesting to me. Some of these photos have the musicians who are playing in the club posing with the fans. So I have one with Charlie Parker sitting with a white couple at the Royal Roost in the late 40s. In thinking about that, you think, you know, this is kind of a primordial version of the celebrity selfie where people try and get pictures with celebrities who are walking down the street. And I can't think of any circumstance where you see somebody posing with a celebrity for a photo earlier than this. Then you get to the question of mixing races. You know, this is during the Jim Crow era, and yet you see pictures of African-American celebrities with white people, and they all look delighted, and you see pictures of African-American people sitting at tables in mixed groups or adjacent to white groups, and that led me on a whole other line of research with this book.
0: I'm glad you mentioned your website, because I think people, if they go there, they're going to buy your book. And it's just <laughs> packed with this stuff. And it's just it's so fascinating. But I want to rewind just a bit, because you do tell a good story about the birth of these clubs and how jazz was born in New Orleans. But it pushed north you know, to Chicago and New York and D.C. and here in Boston and the Midwest and the West Coast. Um, but you write that this was often due to unrelated external circumstances. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, so jazz is born in New Orleans at the turn of the 20th century. There's a red-light district in New Orleans called Storyville that's filled with bordellos and saloons and all manner of (laughs) distractions. And the people who run these places hire musicians from the city's marching bands and ragtime piano players, and they don't really care what they play as long as they keep the customer satisfied. These different kinds of music, marching band music and the funeral bands and the ragtime kind of meld together in this unsupervised situation to become jazz. And the birthplace of jazz is New Orleans. But in 1917, the United States enters World War I, and there are military bases around New Orleans, and the Navy Department finds that the abundant sin on offer in Storyville is a great distraction to the new recruits who are being brought in to be trained for the war. So they forced the city of New Orleans to close down Storyville, which has the unintended consequence of all these jazz musicians being out of work. Also in 1917, the first Great Migration starts, where because of the war, there are tremendous needs for workers to work in military-related industries like building munitions or meatpacking or shipbuilding. And this all takes place in the northern and western industrialized cities. And so there's a great migration of African Americans who move northward for these wartime jobs. So cities like Chicago and Detroit, where there's automobile manufacturing, experience these great influx of African American people looking for jobs. As there are more people with more jobs, there's more discretionary income and people looking for opportunities to have fun. So more clubs start opening. So these out-of-work musicians in New Orleans start going to places like Kansas City, but primarily Chicago, which is at the end of the railroad line, for jobs to play music in these industrial centers that have uh, expanding populations. And so the second great jazz center, is Chicago, where lots of these people have moved. So in 1920, prohibition is enacted, which makes liquor illegal. And lots of bars across the country are closed, the vast majority. But uh, as people don't lose their taste for alcohol, speakeasies start opening, which are illegal clubs serving illegal alcohol. No city has more of these than Chicago, which is dominated by Al Capone, the gangster and the biggest bootlegger in the country. And he happens to be a big jazz fan. And instructs the clubs that he controls to hire African-American musicians because he feels they're oppressed like his Italian-American relatives, and he relates to them, and he loves the music. While the war is raging, and Prohibition is the law of the land, Chicago is basically a wide-open town filled with musicians playing jazz and clubs selling illegal bootleg liquor. Uh, We find, as we trace the history of these clubs, other situations like the Great Depression starting, and Al Capone being arrested for income tax evasion, and a wave of reformers cleaning up Chicago, that the musicians all migrate to New York then, and that becomes the third great center of jazz. And New York, of course, has become the the center of broadcasting and radio and record companies, so that's a natural fit there. And so we keep seeing these kind of external circumstances at play alongside the musical innovations that are happening, driving where jazz is played, by whom jazz is played, and what kind of music is played.
0: Wow. And your book breaks down all these cities and across the country and and starting in New York, which I think takes up about a third of, of the book and you go through the different neighborhoods and things. You know, New York City, as you mentioned, would become the center of jazz. And there's the world-famous clubs that everyone knows, Birdland, the Savoy, the Apollo, so many others. Uh, What's amazing about this book is that there's so many small clubs, and they're always packed. It's just amazing that people were really going out and supporting
1: this. It is. And, you know, in New York, in the 20s, Prohibition sort of stuck. But in 1926, a new mayor was elected who liked alcohol and basically— stopped enforcing any uh, Prohibition-era laws, and so New York became a hotbed of these speakeasies, both in Harlem, which is the African-American part of town, but really all over New York. Some of these clubs, like the Apollo or the Village Vanguard in New York, opened in the 30s and are still open today, while others of these clubs might be open for six months, a year, a year and a half not make a go of it, and really very little is known about them. And, and I had to dig very deep to find out much meaningful information.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating because with the pictures that you've gotten, you can really explore these cities and in New York, these neighborhoods. You mentioned Harlem. There's also 52nd Street in Midtown, which had a lot of clubs, Greenwich Village, is it fair to say that each neighborhood would have its own style of clubs, or, or did the neighborhoods feature
1: different styles of music, or was that more? The neighborhoods did have different styles of clubs, and in the same way that there were external circumstances driving things, the neighborhoods in New York, most of them had clubs for a period of time, and then the clubs would migrate. Most of the scenes started in Harlem in the 20s which was the main African-American area in New York City. But lots of people from downtown and midtown would come up to hear jazz. And it was a pretty integrated scene, with one notable exception, the Cotton Club. But even in the 20s, there were integrated clubs in Harlem. And in 1935, there were race riots in Harlem. And that had the effect of, at least in people's perception, making it a dangerous place for white people to go. And so a lot of these clubs lost a lot of their client base and moved to Midtown in order to go to a place that white people would feel comfortable coming to these clubs. There were still many clubs in Harlem the whole time, but there was a shift for some of these clubs that had a lot more of a black and white clientele moving to Midtown. In the 30s, a scene had started to coalesce on 52nd Street in New York that had swing bands. And uh, that became a center for a lot of these clubs and another one of these great external circumstances driving the evolution of music happens there so united states is in world war ii in the 40s the government is trying to come up with any idea they can to raise money for the war effort and somebody comes up with the idea that they should enact a cabaret tax to charge a 30 percent premium on clubs that featured live music that had dancing or singers and at the time swing music was the dominant form in jazz And swing bands had vocalists, and swing bands were for dancing. So they enacted this law, and almost immediately it backfired. The people who owned clubs raised their prices by 30%. Fewer people could afford to come see these acts. Fewer people, as a consequence, were able to maintain their swing orchestras or swing bands, which might have 10 or 15 or 20 members and were expensive to keep going. There was kind of a crisis on 52nd Street and around the country, really, whereby the people who had clubs couldn't get enough people in to keep them to be a viable business proposition. Completely coincident to that, a new kind of jazz had been happening up in Harlem at a couple of clubs that became known as bebop. And... Uh, That was a reaction. Uh, Swing music was very tightly scripted. People played written arrangements. The music was very formatted. A musician, if they were the lead trumpet player, might get a couple of solos during a show. But it was very, very scripted. And a lot of the musicians felt restricted in this format. And so to blow off steam, they started going to these jam sessions where this completely improvised, solo-heavy music started happening called bebop. And it was music for listening to rather than music for dancing to. So at some point, somebody on 52nd Street realizes, hey, if I book bebop acts, I can pay them less because they've only got four or five members instead of 20. And there's no dancing, and there's no vocalist, which means I don't have to pay this 30% cabaret tax. I can get around it. And so that external circumstance of the cabaret tax is what supercharges bebop. And everybody starts booking bebop bands. And that is what 52nd Street is most famous for.
0: It's interesting because I jotted down something that you wrote in your book, and it was really on reflection of the, the racial integration. But hearing the story that you just told, you know, it opened up my mind that it was so many things. But you wrote that these spaces were at the center of both artistic and social change. And, you know, what you said really backs that up.
1: To backtrack a little, when I finally decided, OK, I've got to do this book, at that point, I was anything but an expert on jazz clubs of the 40s and 50s. So I thought, okay, i got to speak to some people who were there and find out what it was like from a first-person point of view. And I had met Quincy Jones a couple times in the record business, and I knew some people who were very close to him, and so he agreed to do an interview with me. He started playing as a teenager in Seattle and going to clubs, and then moved to Boston and then came to New York in the early 50s. And in the course of interviewing him, I said, kind of offhandedly, what was the racial situation like in these clubs? And he said, it was fantastic. Everybody got along. All anybody cared about was whether you could play. White musicians, black musicians, people in the audiences. And uh, he said to me, you know, if people had paid attention to jazz musicians, racism would have been over in the 50s. And that really shocked me. I'd never heard that before, but obviously <laughs> he's an erudite guy with uh, incredible breadth of experience, and so... Uh, It kind of threw me for a loop, but I was fascinated. So my next interview was with Sonny Rollins, probably the most famous jazz musician alive. And uh, he grew up in Harlem and was talking about those clubs. And at some point I said, so Sonny, here's what Quincy told me about the racial situation. What was your experience? And he reacted like he'd been waiting to tell this story for a long time and nobody had ever asked it. And kind of went on a tear and said, you know... Nobody ever gives jazz musicians credit for what an integrated scene it was, and uh, I'm really glad you asked me that, and told me, you know, his experiences. He started going to 52nd Street as a teenager. He was 17. He would draw on a mustache with an eyebrow pencil so he'd look old enough to get into the club. Everybody got along, and it was kind of amazing, and I asked him about the record labels, which he would recorded for, which were white owned and he said, you know, we were kind of all in this fight together, and nobody cared about race. It was all about... Love of the music and wanting to play together. And he expressed to me that when he first started playing some of these clubs, he said, you know, as a guy who grew up in Harlem and hadn't really had that close interaction with white people, really kind of blew him away for people to be coming up to him at these clubs, asking him for his autograph and wanting to pose for a photo and telling him how great he was. And certainly by no means was New York a paradise for racial discrimination, but these clubs he called kind of an oasis from everything that was going on outside, and everybody was just going there to have a great time, enjoy the music, and everybody along great. And at the end of this kind of tear that he went on, he said, I hope you put this in your book. You know, this is a story that needs to be told. And I was kind of blown away, to be honest. I said, of course, I'm going to put this in my book, and it's kind of incredible what you're telling me. But obviously, he was there.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon Earbuds.
0: We're speaking with Jeff Gold, who's the author of Sitting in, Jazz Clubs of the 1940s and 50s. It's an astonishing book. Some things I was really surprised about, Quincy Jones, he grew up in Seattle, and the Seattle club scene back in the, what was it, the 40s or something, 30s? Yeah. I was amazed, and and Quincy says it was, quote, absolutely insane and absolutely sacred place. So this really moved beyond New Orleans and New York.
1: I was kind of limited both by the amount of pages, there are 260-odd pages, but also what I could find in terms of illustrations, photographs, memorabilia from these clubs. So rather than being exhaustive, which would be impossible because there were thousands of these clubs, I think through hearing the stories of musicians who were there and seeing these pictures, actually, it's much different than a kind of dry academic version of it. And it's kind of amazing both to hear these stories of this emerging racial harmony during the Jim Crow era, but actually see it in the pictures where you see these white people sitting with Charlie Parker, who at that point isn't the legend he became. He's just a very accomplished musician playing in a club in New York. It's really a little known situation. And I felt really glad to be able to discover it and tease out some first person accounts. And at some point it dawned on me to have been to a jazz club in the late 40s, which Sonny and Dan Morgenstern, a historian I spoke to, also were, you've got to be 90 years old. Mm. This history, the ability to talk to people who are actually there, is about to be uh, impossible to investigate first person. So I'm really glad I was able to speak to Dan and Quincy and Sonny Rollins about their firsthand experiences.
0: Well, let me ask you this so our listeners know. You also sent them, either electronically probably, but you sent them some of the pictures and we kind of go through them with them. And, and, you know, I'm just so curious, you know, what it was like for you to kind of, uh, you know, not you can't speak for them, but how did they relive that through their eyes and, and the stories that they told were amazing?
1: And I was kind of blown away that they were blown away. They clearly brought back a lot of memories You know, they they were familiar with these, obviously, but they hadn't seen examples of these in many, many decades, and I don't think had thought about it, really. And Sonny started off our conversation by saying, man, I'm looking through these. It's blowing my mind to uh, remember these clubs and see these pictures, and in some cases, some of them have musicians, as I said, posing with fans. Uh, They were tripping out on, on seeing them. It was really kind of exciting to me. And it reinforced my feeling at an early stage that they'd stumbled upon something. When even people like Dan Morgenstern, who for 30 years ran the Rutgers Jazz Institute and is the kind of uh, most important jazz critic alive, and historian, uh, was talking about how blown away he was seeing these.
0: Wow. Well, you know what I was amazed at, too, is the interior of these clubs and the stages are mind-blowing. Like, there's, I don't remember one of the club, but it's got a cutout of, like, a baby grand piano over it. And it, That's called the baby grand. No, it is the baby, there you go. It was amazing to see because there are very clearly small rooms. And as you mentioned, the crowds right there, and especially with Bebop, it was, you know, the electricity and the, just the communication must have been insane.
1: Yeah, I've got a picture of the Club Onyx, which was one of the main clubs on 52nd Street. Billy Holiday played something like an 18-month residency there. And I have reproduced a postcard that shows the whole club. And it looks like it seats maybe 75 people. I mean, it's just impossibly intimate. That's something else I hadn't thought much about. You know, you hear stories of these clubs and the names bandied about, but when you actually see what they look like inside, some of them are just so small you can really feel almost what Sonny's talking about when he says you kind of played with the audience. They were like another member of the band when you were in some of these clubs.
0: And, you know, that comes through in some of that music. You hear the live shows. I was just listening to one from 1960 in a small club, and it it was just incredible. And let me just go back to, you know, we talked about branding, and we're both uh, graphic people. One of the things that just blew me away was the photo folders that these came in. You mentioned that they often the clubs would have a photographer walking around, taking pictures, and developing them. and the amazing photographs but the photo folders were so interesting because they really provided the insight into the clubs and you know for me it was, it's a design and branding dream rolling through those you know the style and the
1: they're just so hip <laughs> as a former graphic designer i completely agree with you that was the first thing that kind of got to me before i even looked at the people in the photos I was so blown away by the artwork in the portfolios that I decided I had to buy these. Some of them, like Birdland, are just so great and evocative of the club. Others of them look like they're kind of a generic folder that they printed the club's name on. Some of them have incredibly racist artwork, like the Cotton Club, which was a racist club. But there's a club called the Club Ubangi that's got a racist name, racist artwork, but the pictures are integrated groups of people. And uh, it was an integrated club. Oddly, there's a club in St. Louis called the Plantation Club that was a straight-up racist club that had, some of their advertising materials, which I didn't use, said strictly white patronage only. But there was another plantation club in Watts in Los Angeles that was owned by an African-American guy named Joe Morris. And it's got this great artwork on the cover. And it says Joe Morris's Plantation Club. So looking at it through the eyes of the 40s, is much different than looking at it through the eyes of 2020 and what a loaded term that is now, but evidently wasn't back then
0: right? I mean, context is everything, and here you really get to see a lot of different viewpoints. I mean, some of that stuff is cutting edge today, and then some of it, you mentioned the Cotton Club and some others, is really that kind of stereotypical race representation of the 20s or something. So it's it's fascinating to see the diversity, no pun intended, of the design and just how it would really inform the club's appeal, you know?
1: So the Cotton Club is a weird kind of anomaly in that It was a straight-up racist club. They only allowed white people in, but they only had African-American performers, and they paid them pretty well. While it was a racist place with racist admission policies and racist graphics, there was a lot of good that came out of it in that they gave very important early jobs to Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Louis Armstrong, and other big band leaders. Most importantly, they had a national radio wire, and there was a live from the Cotton Club national radio broadcast every week. And so while swing music is a huge deal in New York, and these artists are well known in New York, they're basically unknown outside of New York. And this national radio exposure at a time where radio was becoming a dominant communication medium meant that... Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, and Cab Calloway could get very lucrative record deals, sold records across the country, could tour across the country, and it was very important to their success and national profile. So while it was a horrible place, some good did come out of it. I spoke to Dan Morgenstern, the historian, and he told me that he talked to many people who played there, and they just looked at it like, hey, it's a great job, It's it pays well, it's the way of the world right now, and we're happy to be able to play there. And Sonny Rollins, on the other hand, felt like, yeah, but you don't think the gangsters who owned that place were jazz fans. They were just doing it because it was a way to make money. And that's definitely the case. But it's interesting getting different perspectives on a situation like that. And it was interesting to me to learn that the Cotton Club was kind of the anomaly. There were some segregated clubs, but there were more integrated clubs than there were segregated clubs.
0: Hmm. Well, speaking of different perspectives, one of your interviews is with the jazz pianist Jason Moran, and he's a younger musician, and this scene obviously predates him. I wonder what his thoughts were culturally, sonically, upon viewing these photographs socially um, around this time
1: period. I wanted to get kind of a kaleidoscopic view of these clubs. So I spoke to Sonny and Quincy and Dan Morganston, who were there, and I wanted to speak to a younger musician who knows a lot about jazz history, and that was Jason Moran who is a MacArthur Genius Grant winner, a visual artist. He's the head of the jazz program at the Kennedy Center. And a lot of his work is infused by the history of jazz, and he's played with a lot of older musicians. When I showed him these photos, he was almost speechless. He said, I have literally never seen one of these before in my life, and I didn't even know they existed. He just stood there almost gasping, looking at these things. Jason was really blown away because he's a guy who spends a lot of time on history and thinking about documentation. He said, you know, I've never really thought about the fact that we don't document the audiences. I know how important the audiences are to what gets performed, but I hadn't really thought about the fact that you never see pictures of the audiences, and now here we do. He had a lot of thoughts about some of these folders you can see by war bonds, so that dates them in the middle of World War II. And Jason was saying, you know, it's incredible that, you know, the country is going through this horrible, horrible period of time, and these people just look happy as can be. Everybody is thrilled. The music is such an escape. And for instance, when I asked him about the Cotton Club, he said, look, African-American musicians have been oppressed for so long that the primary thing a musician wants to do is play their music and be heard. And even if it's a situation as screwed up as the Cotton Club, that's an opportunity for people to express themselves and play their music. And I can completely understand why people would have been eager to play there. Jason and I go off in a bunch of different directions analyzing the music, why it's so appealing to people today, what we can learn by looking at these photos of the audiences, the club culture, the fact that some clubs are very long-lived, but others of them might have been around for a year or two, and uh, really all that's left is these photographs and maybe some ads in an African-American newspaper. And, And he was just brilliant at looking at these from an insider and outsider point of view.
0: Yeah, he noted that a lot of these clubs are going away. And so two questions. One, what do you think the legacy of these clubs is? And then, two, Jason tells a great story about the difference in playing Carnegie Hall in a club that speaks to kind of the participation of the audience.
1: He tells a story about having a conversation with the great saxophonist Wayne Shorter. And Wayne Shorter told him he had been in Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. And at some point, Blakey had played at Carnegie Hall. And it was a completely different experience for him because the audience was reverent, nobody was serving drinks, There wasn't talking going on during the performance. It was a concert audience. And so, uh, you know, a few weeks later, they're back playing in clubs. People are talking while they're playing and food's being served. And Art Blakey says, without irony from the stage, I bet you guys wouldn't be doing this if this were Carnegie Hall. And and it's just kind of a, a great way of looking at the difference in the kinds of venues that jazz was being played in at that time.
0: It was such a fashionable time in those olden days with the suits and the coats on the men and all the women dressed up to the nines. You also pulled in Robin Given, an author and writer, but she's also known as a fashion critic to the Washington Post. I'm curious, what did you hope to learn from her on on these pictures, and did you?
1: Yeah, well, I kept staring at these pictures and looking at the fashions and the different types of alcohol that would be on the tables and what you could see in the peripheries, and I thought, It would really be great to get somebody who's an expert at deconstructing photographs to take a look at these with me and try and tease meaning out. Robin is an expert. She's the only fashion critic ever to win a Pulitzer Prize, and I noticed recently she's now the critic at large for the Washington Post. But she's a brilliant deconstructor of photographs. And so when I approached her uh, to see if she'd look at some of these photographs and talk to me, she said, you know, I don't really know that much about jazz. And I had to kind of convince her that that wasn't why I was coming to her. I had that side of it covered. But I was really interested in talking about the fashion, the culture, and what kinds of things could be deduced from the photos that I might not be seeing. And there's a great example of that. There's the picture of Charlie Parker with the white couple, the Royal Roost, which is on the website com. And is my favorite photo in the book. Wow. You see Charlie Parker, 1948, looking very sly but smiling, happy to be there, posing at a little round club table with this white couple who look very happy to be there. So Robin says, well, okay, look at that photo. Now you see Charlie Parker's wearing a pinstripe suit, as is the guy he's posing with. I said, yeah. She said, well, look at the lapels on Charlie Parker's suit. They're much bigger and more exaggerated than the other guy. And I said, okay. (laughs) She said, and the pinstripes are very much lighter and wider than on the other guy's suit. It's overall a much louder suit. She said, I would guess that he chose that suit because you could be seen from the furthest corner of the club wearing a suit like that, whereas the other guy's suit was just a suit. I'd stared at the picture for a long time, and I would have never come up with something like that on my own. But I think she's absolutely right. As she said it, I went... Bingo,
0: for sure. Well, I think she knows more about jazz than she lets on, because (laughs) uh, I saw two quotes that really resonated with me, where she said that jazz has always attracted a more daring, open-minded, and cosmopolitan fan base, and that contributed to the integrated crowds. I think that's well backed up here. But she also notes in another quote kind of the arc of jazz that we've been speaking about, um, where she says that some people came to dance and some people came to listen.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely the case. You do see people who are dressed more to celebrate and people who are dressed more uh, to listen, it looks like. At least that's my read on things.
0: We're talking with Jeff Gold, the author of Sitting in Jazz Clubs of the 1940s and 50s. And I snuck in a question there, and I want to end on this note or coming close to the end on this note. What do you think the legacy of these clubs are?
1: That's a complicated question. I think the music that happened in these clubs that we're left with still resonates with many people and the fact that we're still seeing a pretty steady stream of reissues or or first issues of music recorded at these times and in some of these clubs testifies to how incredible what took place in these clubs was. I think that There's still a lot to learn from investigating these clubs, as I did about the racial situation. These were really among the earliest places that black and white people could gather safely during the Jim Crow era, and where, as Sonny Rollins said, jazz is where racism started breaking down heavily. I think that the fashions, as I discussed with Robin Given, have a lot of resonance with people, and she talks about designers who have been inspired by the looks of this era and use those as jumping-off points for their collections. Like the 60s is in rock music, one of those magical times that uh, people harken back to is when some of the greatest music in the genre was ever made and when the styles and the looks and the sounds were all kind of a break from what had gone before them. And, and kind of heralded kind of a sea change in culture.
0: That is very well said. Uh, I'd like to thank you for your time, Jeff. And I'd like to ask our listeners, you've probably got some money or some gift cards out there after the holidays here. And I don't think you could find a better book to sit down for many, many hours with than sitting in jazz clubs of the 1940s and 50s. Jeff, I want to also ask you one last thing is sure. on a completely different note. You wrote another book about one of my favorites called Total Chaos. <laughs> Um, I've earmarked some of my holiday money to pick up the story of the Stooges that you had a conversation with, with Iggy. And I'd love to, after I read that, to have you back. Uh, I'm certain that will be quite a different conversation.
1: I would very much love to talk to you about that. (laughs) Rock music and the Stooges is a passion of mine. and. That is another completely unbelievable story that I feel incredibly fortunate to have gotten a firsthand account of.
0: So there's two for your list, listeners. Thank you, Jeff.
1: Thank you very much, Steve.
0: If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. You can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom, Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one of a kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive and All Music Books Podcast.